my name is Justin the Clue, and I'm here today with Will Sloan. And you're listening to the Important Cinema Club. And today we're going to the seedy part of town because we're going to be talking about Poverty Row. What is that, Will? Poverty Row in the golden age of Hollywood, you had your Paramounts, your Warner Brothers, your MGMs's. Making the big musical comedies for the whole family to enjoy. But you know, sometimes you got to have stuff for the second half of that double bill, especially during the war years. Mm-hmm. So there were the other studios, the, the studios in the not great part of town, the studio with the lesser facilities, the studios that instead of taking a gross percentage on the box office, would sell their movies to states and theaters on on a rental basis. And then if you could calculate in advance how ma- how much you were going to make from those rentals, you could be in profit before you even started the movie. So there's no motivation to even make them good. But supposedly, they wouldn't even have that much of a big cut. They would make only 10% over their line of what the movie costs to make. And they made them cheap. And there was also... No motivation to make them much better because, like, did you really want to chip away at that small percentage of profit you were guaranteed to get? Dave Kerr, the critic, wrote in 1990, A director on Poverty Row labored on films in the absolute certainty that no film critic would see them, no sophisticated public would encounter them, and no financial reward would ever accrue. And no financial award would ever accrue. And Dave Kerr recently programmed a retrospective at the Museum of Modern Art of some of the better Poverty Row films. I think for those of us who are interested in movies, the the Poverty Row movies are interesting for two reasons. One, because you get stuff like, you know, Bela Lugosi horror movies, Charlie Chan mysteries, Bowery Boys comedies. If Edgar G. Elmer films. Well, okay, that's the second part, though. Like, mm. if you have a soft spot for those kinds of shittier genres, though, you know, if you like Bowery Boys movies, uh, if you like shitty horror movies, then, you know, Poverty Row has that. But also... Toiling within Poverty Row were a handful of great or good or adequate directors who tried to bring something to it. Usually from Europe. Yeah, usually from Europe. And oftentimes, like, in the face of, as Dave Kerr said, just, like, insurmountable indifference. Mm -hmm. Like... You could be William Bodine, a silent film veteran who got stuck in Poverty Row in his middle and old age, and just kind of cynically churning out one movie after another. There's a reason they called him One Shot Bodine. Yeah, and and just being like, well, this is it for me, and uh, I'll just I'll just you know make shit. Or you can be Edgar G. Elmer. Uh, who we've talked about on a previous episode, European emigre, former colleague of F.W. Murnau, who winds up through circumstance and bad luck making movies in Poverty Row and trying against all odds to bring a little bit of that German expressionist flair to these movies, even though it will get him nowhere. So what we ended up doing for this podcast is the history of Poverty Row encompasses a whole bunch of companies. There's like a big three, which we're going to talk about. And there's also different kinds of movies like it spans so many different genres so we actually watch five films that we're gonna go in chronological order and the first one that we watched was hitler's madman by a little filmmaker called douglas sirk this is one of the interesting things about poverty row in addition to all these like silent film vets who had fallen on hard times in the history of poverty row there are a handful of directors who later went on to better things and this was sort of their training ground so cirque in this case but also you know phil carlson started in poverty row later made the phoenix city story joseph h lewis who later made the great gun crazy started with uh, the invisible ghost starring <laughs> bella lugosi and that's considered i think the best 
uh, monogram pictures, Bella Lugosi movie. And we should point out that it was really difficult to talk about Poverty Row and somehow avoid Bella Lugosi and Edgar G. Ulmer. Because if you search that term, they're the films that pop up the most. Yeah. So for Hitler's Madman, this was a film that was shot in 1943 and was designed purely as a piece of exploitation and propaganda against uh, the Nazis. It has the interesting distinction that while it was a Poverty Row picture that was shot in a week, it was bought by MGM and re-released after they shot a bunch of footage to pad it out. Yeah, so it's like 90 minutes now, I think, but it probably would have been like 70 minutes before. It has uh, a good Poverty Row cast. John Carradine is in it. The uh, faded comedian Edgar Kennedy, best known as uh, the... Uh, popcorn salesman in Duck Soup. Uh, Ava Gardner shows up for a brief moment. Ava Gardner is one of the kind of biggest stars to emerge from Poverty Row. She was in, I think, uh, Ghosts on the Loose with the Bowery (laughs) Boys and Bella Lugosi. Uh, This was a PRC movie, is it not? Yes, it was. Uh, Producers Releasing Corporation was, I think, at the very bottom rung of Poverty Row. Mm. They are reputed to have never spent $100,000 on a movie. And in fact, most of their movies probably would have cost like, what, 25000 like mm. m- much lower than 100000 They're best known for having Edgar G. Ulmer as their star director. But otherwise, all their movies, you know, were a one-week shoot. But, but I mean, despite the fact that they were one-week shoot, I think, like, pound for pound, they probably had some of the best movies to come out of Poverty Row. I mean, they have Detour under their name, Ulmer's Masterpiece. They have that. They also, they have The Devil Bat, you know, <laughs> my favorite movie of all time. And they also had another guy called Frank Wisbar, who was, like Ulmer, another European emigre, who, um, you know, tried to bring a little bit of style to his movies. Uh, he made a movie called Strangler of the Swamp, and he made Devil Bat's Daughter. Which you watched this week. Well, we'll get to Devil Bat's Daughter in a bit. Let's talk about Hitler's Madman. <laughs> so Hitler's Madman is a film that's, shockingly such a downer mm-hmm. like you would think that in the time of war what they would want to show is look how villainous the nazis are and look what we can do to rise up against them but instead because they're shakily documenting something that really happened the film ends up ending with the entire town and every character that we've met being brutally murdered by the <laughs> nazis so it's more of like a call to arms like you have to do something about that as opposed to the fluffy popcorn pulp poverty rope picture i expected it to be. Do you see much of Cirque's later personality in this film? Cirque, of course, later made uh, All That Heaven Allows and Written in the Wind and became kind of the quintessential, uh, as they would call them, women's picture director, but who brought a lot of kind of subversive. Uh, I think there's a lot of competency in this film. There's a bunch of fog. The camera moves way more than you would expect for a Poverty Row picture. I feel like we're going to say this a lot in this episode because, like, trying to find the art in Poverty Row, a lot of it just comes down to, like... Fog. Fog uh, and uh, nifty shadows and a camera that moves. Because most, like, William Bodine movies are very static. Because that's the easiest thing to do. Or, Or most Poverty Row movies have very few, like... Not a lot of cutting, you know, very basic composition. So any director like Frank Wisbar with Devil Bat's Daughter, he gets some nifty compositions in there. Well, I could see that Circus's film was trying to do different stuff. And as opposed to blowing up in his face, it actually paid off mm-hmm. in a way that he does craft characters that you care about and the performances are solid. And that even at in the finale where a character perishes right before the, uh, the end that you would not expect to, I think that's a kind of shock that you hope you would see with things like Poverty Row because you have this idea that at Poverty Row while you had to make them fast it was also very hands off Mm. like people go you know as long as you deliver on this date and that 
you have a complete film with beginning, mm-hmm. middle, and end. We don't care what you do. And you can feel Douglas Sir kind of struggling with that, but still finding his own direction to it. As far as how it compares to, like, his color, drama-driven pictures that starred women later on, uh, it's tough for me to make that comparison because they're so drastically different. I've seen people write, like, oh, you can see the subtextual layers between both of them. And it's like, come on. Well, I know John Carradine's just hamming it up. Uh, uh, well, you know, this week I watched Edgar G. Elmer's Isle of Forgotten Sins. And, like, the, the problem when you get to the stage that I am in with Edgar G. Elmer fandom, which is I want to see everything he's ever done, but I've seen all the good ones. So now I'm like reduced to like like the dregs of his filmography the problem is that you find yourself being like oh the camera moved there ah the master at work <laughs> look at that shadow on the wall it's yeah. so expressionist yeah and, and and how does this story fit in with Omer's thematic preoccupations you know when in real Listen, he had five days and he had to finish it <laughs> yeah yeah like they can't all be detour but when you're kind of trawling through Poverty Row, you can stumble on a film like Hollow Triumph, a.k.a. The Scar, which came out in 1948 and was directed by Steve Seckley, a director from Budapest. And this is the kind of film that you're like, this is what I want. Oh, I mean, most Poverty Row movies, unfortunately, are boring. Yes. But this one is like rat-a-tat, you know, really, really fat. Like, it, it is like what you want when you get a pulp story and it's actually kind of smartly written like it anticipates everything you think is going to happen and does it a little bit earlier just so it can twist in a different direction this one stars paul on reed best known as victor laszlo in casablanca uh playing a gangster who's just been released from prison and wants to go on one last job um but things go wrong and he has to assume the identity of his doppelganger a famous psychiatrist um and this psychiatrist looks exactly like him except that he has a scar on one cheek and uh so oh does he make a mistake and put it on the wrong cheek yeah yeah uh paul on reed scars himself on the wrong side and the film anticipates this and tells the main character right away the plot is is like super goofy but played absolutely straight like before he assumes the psychiatrist's identity he starts an affair with the psychiatrist's girlfriend yes that's right <laughs> you know it's like it's a little far-fetched but like this is this is a movie where the cheapness really becomes style. I'm thinking of the early scene when Paul on Reed uh, sticks up the casino. The casino in this movie is like just a warehouse space, an absolutely nondescript space, like a blank wall behind, and it's like five tables with some lights. Nothing about it looks like a casino, but the way it's presented, it looks like a stylistic choice. The way it's lit. It, 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 it looks like this stark idea of a casino. The director has so much control of, over every element of this film. The editing, the uh, cinematography, shot in all these like wide-angle lenses that make the picture look slightly off. Well, he's he's always doing something interesting visually. He's mm-hmm. always doing something to keep you on your toes, whether it's like having somebody in the foreground and then having somebody right behind them in the background, like taking advantage of all the, I guess, planes of space that are available to him. Because like most William Bodine's movies, for example, are very like... <laughs> person right in the center of the frame. Yeah, person right in the center of the frame. Or like uh, Steve Seckley, the director of this film, is always doing stuff for like Chiarusco lighting. Yeah, uh, and that's what I love about the idea of Poverty Row when someone tells me this, especially when you see Detour as the first film, you go, man, are they all going to be like this? Spoiler, no. Well, it might just be worth saying, like, Detour, one of the great things about Detour is 
you know, it was filmed in California, so Ulmer didn't have access to New York. So what he did was he just took like a street sign, you know, saying like 72nd Street or whatever. And then he shot just fog everywhere to make it look like a foggy night where all you could see was the street sign in New York. And not only did it cover the fact that he had no set, but it made it look like New York was this foggy memory. And it also imposes this auteuristic vision on the (laughs) film that makes it feel different than other pictures. Yeah. And I think that when you're watching all these films, especially noirs, when you have this idea, this heightened sense of style, it brings something to the movie, even if the picture at the end of the day is just the Tales from the Crypt episode. (laughs) Yeah. Well, you know, as, as we said about Edgar G. Elmer, like one of the things that made him interesting was his resourcefulness and Mm -hmm. his career, had he been able to work at like Warner Brothers or Universal for a more extended period of time, his career might have been less interesting because like, yeah, his authorial signature was his resourcefulness, his creativity. And uh, maybe this could lead us into the next movie we're going to talk about, Macbeth by uh, Orson Welles. Yeah. So Macbeth is a, you know, a guest appearance from a very famous filmmaker in Poverty Row. And there's a very specific reason for that, which is that he wanted to prove to the studios that he could make a picture in a specific amount of time. 23 days, I believe, on yep. this one, which is now how all low-budget movies are shot. <laughs> uh, like 10 days yeah. or five days if you're David Dakota. Yeah, uh, this was made at Republic Pictures, which has been described as the MGM of Poverty Row. Uh, they had higher budgets. They're kind of like B-plus movies, basically. And the founder, Herbert Yates, was uh, convinced by Orson Welles because there's always a feeling, even with any company, that maybe we could be a little bit more respectable mm-hmm. and Orson Welles kind of promised that to them. He was going to do a um, reimagining of Macbeth on the big screen, and he had experience with, uh, doing it because he had done Voodoo Macbeth on Broadway, which was an all-black cast, mm-hmm. and he used a lot of those ideas in his film version. And and Republic Pictures has kind of like a canon film style, like double life, where they also paid for John Ford's The Quiet Man and Rio Grande. They made uh, Nicholas Ray's Johnny Guitar. So they had these artistic aspirations in addition to all the kind of like outdoor westerns they did which were really their specialty and we'll get to that in a minute but so Macbeth actually has all the elements that you would associate with a Pavi Row production shot all on sets uh, in this case, supposedly old Western sets that they redress. Oh, that's interesting. Yeah. Uh, all with this stylish use of shadows and light. And it actually feels, to my mind, almost a little bit too stage bound. Well, I was watching it on this viewing, trying to think, like, what is Orson Welles's take on Macbeth? Why does he want to make this play at this time i i don't think there's an answer as clear-cut as like he you know he clearly identified so much with the story of falstaff and mm-hmm. yet he had a, a real idea of what he wanted to say with the falstaff story i don't think he has anything particular that he wants to he has no particular revisionist take on Macbeth, except for the fact that it's the idea of making Macbeth under these conditions and it may also be the idea that he wanted to make a shakespearean film in this style that would be as cinematic as possible. Because when you think of Shakespeare at a certain point, you think of stage boundness. But at this period of time, people like Laurence Olivier, and in this case, Orson Welles, was trying to do something different with it to the point that he edited down the uh, actual stage play a lot and rewrote new scenes to make it flow better. Well, I mean, this movie is simultaneously very ostentatiously cinematic and highly theatrical. Mm -hmm. It's a movie 
about like the tactile pleasure of a sat. Yes. I mean, so much, so much of like, like it's this, big, and it's a massive sat. Well, it's this massive, big, rocky sat that looks super fake. It looks like, like the bat cave in an old Batman serial. And like, there's a blank white backdrop around it. And there's just like, you know, like a flat textureless floor underneath it. Um, and like, there will be times when it, we're supposed to be in the castle, but it's clearly just the same set as any, the same as any other part of the set. So, like, he wants you to look at a stage set, yeah, he and, does, and see the beauty of its artificiality. And at the same time, he's using the camera in ways that you would associate with the theater, which is that things just run. But he's also manipulating them to specifically make you feel certain ways. There's this one super long shot where Macbeth murders the king mm-hmm. that is done in one seamless-looking take, yeah, and the camera shifts to a low angle on him, to a high angle, all depending on what the feelings of the scene is. And also, because the set is so big, it allows a level of depth that's crazy that you don't usually associate with cinema, especially Pavi Rowe in this period of time. Well, that scene in particular is an example of how the movie is both very theatrical and very mm-hmm. cinematic, because it's a long, unbroken performance. And yet, he's able to you know manipulate the camera to make us look at it in a million different ways. Uh, and then, you know, there's another scene like the one where Macbeth is ranting and there's an obvious like wind machine on mm. him. And then there'll be lightning that like flashes shadows on the blank wall behind him. Or like, actually there are some times when you see people's shadows against, you know, against the sky yeah. ostensibly. Um, but I, I feel like that's all on purpose. Like, yeah, yeah, of course. Orson Welles is not just like shooting. He's like, I got it. That's all I have. To the point that he kept after this movie came out, uh, Republic wasn't too happy with it. Well, I mean, like, he was his usual self where he mm. sort of like didn't spend a lot of time in the editing room and they were kind of frustrated with it. This movie actually had two releases. It came out in 1948 where it was released kind of in the shadow of Laurence Olivier's Hamlet, which won Best Picture that year and was a very prestigious production, but also you know, a rather less cinematic mm. production than, and a rather less imaginative one than this one. But I think it's still a good movie. Got a great Olivier performance. But, you know, that was what was in fashion at the time. And so this movie was a, a notable financial and critical failure. And then it, they released it again three years later with another 20 minutes cut out. And the Scottish accents, the bad <laughs> Scottish accents dubbed over. <laughs> now, do you have a particular version that like, which one did you watch for this? I movie? watched the complete version. Did you see the no accent version that was like 89 minutes? I haven't seen it. It's on the Blu-ray yeah. that just came out by all the films. I'll, I'll get to it eventually. I like this movie a lot. It's super fun. I've seen better versions of Macbeth. This movie is about the idea of like, what if a Poverty Row studio made Macbeth? And what if, what if a great director like Orson Welles worked in a Poverty Row context. It's an experiment in that. But moving on from Macbeth, which is more of a blip in Poverty Row, like this kind of stuff didn't happen very often. It was more a case of films like The Golden Stallion, which came out in 1949, which was a Roy Rogers Pictures, who was a cowboy who was very friendly, loved to sing, had a horse named Trigger, went on adventures. Trigger is the uh, smartest horse in Hollywood, according to the opening credits of this movie. (laughs) Yeah, and this movie does not treat Trigger very well. So The Golden Stallion is probably probably the best known Roy Rogers trigger Western right now. And it's entirely, I think because of the advocacy of Quentin Tarantino, uh, Tarantino, uh, is a fan of the director, William Whitney. In fact, Tarantino has said that he prefers Whitney to John Ford, mm-hmm. which is a bit of like contrarianism, I think. Well, William Whitney is very good at what he oh, does, yeah, yeah. which is unpretentious, make it fast, add a lot of action, 
keep it moving. That's the William Whitney style. He actually has an autobiography that I don't remember the exact title, but it's like, kick in the door, throw a punt, run outside. Well, that's what Tarantino likes about Whitney's approach to... Then why doesn't he learn it for his own films? Yeah. <laughs> like, come on, Tarantino. Like, like, like he's made the case that William Whitney brought a leaner, you know, more two-fisted style mm. to the Roy Rogers westerns. And... I have to say, I really enjoyed this movie. I think it's got everything you could want in a movie. Like, it's got... Songs? It's got songs, it's got fistfights, it's got, like, uh, uh, horse chase scenes, it's got lasso stunts. This is a film... And it's, like, 67 minutes. That was also made by Republic Pictures. That has the amazing fact that it was shot in true color, which was a weird color process that only Republic used because it was two-strip. Yeah. So the colors are weird. It's out of date. It looks like the sort of color movies that were being made in the mid-30s. It's, like, blue and red color. Yeah, like... Uh, white sometimes shows up as like blue so like a horse looks like it dyed its hair punk yeah I think it looks really cool and this is a film that is also shockingly dark in what happens <laughs> in it which is the fact that a bad cowboy tries to steal a horse and that horse kills him and Trigger gets blamed uh, Roy Rogers horse so Roy Rogers takes the blame himself and ends up going to jail for three years <laughs> un- under manslaughter charges. And meanwhile, Trigger goes out on his own. He's like, he's kidnapped by these by these criminals. And tortured. And tortured and like, yeah, put into slavery. But then he escapes and uh, eventually Trigger fucks. <laughs> yeah. And Trigger has uh, Trigger Jr. And don't worry, um, the, the female horse who gives birth to the uh, little Trigger Jr., dies yeah and we keep cutting back to her over and over again dead on the ground but i think it's so cool you know roy rogers in prison for three years taking the fall for trigger and he takes you know just like he's okay with it i can only imagine because this was made for children that they have no concept of like three years and how long (laughs) that must feel because Roy rogers gets out of jail like he went on some summer vacation like he's not bothered by it at all Uh, do you like this is my very first roy rogers film i've never seen any roy rogers films I love it. It has everything that I want in movies. And I think Roy Rogers is like, you know, I could I could get into this guy. He's he's like charming and yeah, co- yeah likable. Uh, there's a brutal fist fight between two guys in this movie that actually made me go, wait, are they all like this? The answer is probably no. Yeah. But like like Roy Rogers, he could beat you up, but he doesn't want to. He wants yeah. to sing. He wants to hang out with Trigger. The film is constantly establishing the fact that they don't have their guns, mm-hmm. so nobody can be shot. I was impressed by a lot of the chase scenes in this movie like the se- the scenes of like stampeding horses and like the scenes of yeah like Trigger chasing somebody where, where the camera is moving along with Trigger I mean it's like it's, it's hard fucking work making a movie like this and it's an example of someone like William Whitney could have done just the bare minimum but he's not yeah. like he wants this to be entertaining even though he believes it's disposable it'll play at a matinee one day and then be forgotten like he puts it all in it's incredible how economic this a piece of storytelling it is it's like it's 67 minutes and so much happens in it and you have to remember that something like this is not easy to do to tell a story like that compact yeah especially with all these moving parts like where Roger's going to jail and it ends with a crazy con job that I could not even <laughs> follow that has people faking something and then telling the bad guy that they faked it so the bad guy would be tricked yeah like, yeah, 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 crazy. yeah yeah so good movie the golden stallion maybe i'll out. check out more roy rogers films but yeah. i know what i won't be checking out more of the last film that we watch the ghost chasers now it a Poverty Row episode would not be complete without addressing the Bowery Boys. Mm-hmm. But first, I think we need to talk about Monogram Pictures. Okay. Uh, Monogram Pictures, I think, 
Monogram is the studio you think of when you think of Poverty Row. And when people love Poverty Row, they love Monogram Pictures. I've seen books online that say, like, the Monogram Pictures checklist. What a nightmare that would be. <laughs> that is like a corner of hell where you have to watch all of their films. Monogram, founded in 1931, they were the most prolific Poverty Row studio. Some of their best-remembered productions include uh, Boris Karloff as Mr. Wong, the Chinese detective who was not Charlie Chan. <laughs> also, some of the later Charlie Chan films, some of the last... <laughs> later lesser Charlie Chan uh, films. The ones that at one point starred Henry Silva after Peter Lorre stepped out? Uh, no, sorry, that, that, that's Mr. Motto. Oh my god, no, I can't keep so, track of yeah, all that no, stuff. Mr. Wong had a Sidney Toller in it at, right. at this stage. And of course a lot of Bela Lugosi's worst movies. One of the key figures of Monogram Pictures is Sam Katzman, the Schlockmeister producer who had his Banner Productions label there. And eventually, Monogram Pictures name became such mud that they just changed it to Allied Artists. Mm -hmm. You know, without changing anything else about the studio, they changed it to Allied Artists and they invested a little bit more money into it. They were a studio as well that were supposed to merge with Republic Pictures mm. because Republic... Uh, we didn't mention this, bought up a bunch of the smaller Poverty Row studios to fall under their banner. But Monogram were such rascalians, they didn't get along with Herbert Yates, so they went back onto their own way. Well, the, the later Allied Artist Pictures, they said they were going to make B-plus pictures. And then in the 70s, they made Cabaret, which won Best Picture, and they made uh, The Man Who Would Be King, and they made Mitchell with Joe Don Baker. So, <laughs> the classic oh. Mystery Science Theater yeah. 3000 classic. And now the Bowery Boys. So the Bowery Boys actually got their start in a pretty uh, prestigious setting with a film called Dead End which starred Humphrey Bogart and the Bowery Boys were these rascalian teens and kids that you know Bogart kind of you know watched out for and I guess audiences wanted to see more adventures with they them they became kind of Warner Brothers uh, Jay and Silent Bob <laughs> where they showed up in I think seven or eight movies between 1937 and 1939 most famously Angels with Dirty Faces with Jimmy Cagney at the time they were known as the Dead End Kids mm -hmm. they were uh, yeah Lower East Side um, Irish, I think it's fair to say, like some sort of white ethnic, um, you know, like and they were two-fisted kids. They were just like you and me, Will, right? That's what who we wanted to see up on the screen. Yeah. So they lasted for two years at Warner Brothers, and then they went to Universal, and they became the little tough guys. Uh, then they went to Monogram from 1939 to 1945, where they were the East Side Kids. And then after 1945, and then all the way to 1959, they were the Bowery Boys. Now you may notice. A lot of time has passed. Yeah. Like, they went from the kids to the boys, <laughs> and uh, time was not kind to them. L the leader of the troop is... and. In all these incarnations of the Bowery Boys, like, various boys would come and go. But there are two guys who are essential. There's Hunts Hall, uh, who's, like, the really the really goofy guy. And there's Leo Gorsi, who's the Mo of the troupe. Mm -hmm. Yeah, Hunts, Hunts Hall is Curly, and Leo Gorsi is Mo, and the others are Larry. Leo Gorsi, in the film we watched today, Ghost Chasers... Which I saw on the internet was often called the best Bowery Boys film. Oh. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and was directed by Mr. One-Shot... William Bodine. Oh, I'm glad we could get one of his movies in here. I mean, you said it yourself. We can't do a Poverty Row episode without doing a Bodine. Yeah. And if we just changed our podcast and made it an all William Bodine <laughs> podcast, like we, we would last forever. <laughs> 
He's made like 400 movies. He has. Yeah. And uh, you'd probably go insane. Or I would learn to love the Bodine as it played. I'm like, oh man, this guy. So good. Well, I mean, it's just amazing all the stuff William Bodine did. He did like episodes of The Green Hornet with Bruce Lee. He did Bella Lugosi meets a Brooklyn Gorilla. Jesse James meets Frankenstein's daughter. He did Charlie Chan movies. And of course, he started in the silent era with Mary Pickford making real movies. And it helps that Bodine doesn't care about what he's doing. Yeah. Like in The Ghost Chasers, our Bowery Boy are painfully unfunny. Yeah, so Gorsi is 33 years old in this movie, um, playing a 17-year-old, I guess, and he looks 55. <laughs> he he looks he looks like shit. Yeah. Like, <laughs> he looks awful. They look like on the doorstep of death. So, uh, the Bowery Boys were some of those comedians who boomers saw a lot, I think, because their movies were cheap and played on TV a lot. Mm-hmm. Uh, and people they're, like their four children. People like Fred and Ray have a reverence for the Bowery Boys that you know <laughs> has been recreated in their own films. This movie, Ghost Chasers, I think is about on the level of a later Three Stooges movie, like the late Shemp, you oh, know, no. Joe Besser eras <laughs> of the Three Stooges in terms of how funny it is. And yet, I hate it so much more than those. In, this movie. Why is, do you hate this movie so much? Well, I don't know because like it has everything that I normally like in a movie. It's like a 65 minute lowbrow black and white comedy with, with some like vaudevillian knuckleheads in it. Like normally I'm in heaven. Anytime a movie is like that. There's some puns that made me chuckle. Like this movie again, 65 minutes. It took me three sittings to get through it. <laughs> I just don't like these guys. Yeah. Okay. I can, understand I think that. Leo Gorsi is an utterly charmless presence. He is, uh, you know all the stuff that people say they don't like about the Marx Brothers or the Three Stooges? Yeah. Like, they don't like each other or they're too mean? Too mean. That's all in these Bowery Boys films. Yeah. When Leo Gorsi smacks Hunts Hall, <laughs> like, that's not fun to me. <laughs> like, Hunts Hall is just this goofy guy and Leo, Gor- Leo Gorsi's not funny. He's just mean. Yeah. So when he and, hits and him, he it's looks like abuse. Like, he looks like an alcoholic. Because <laughs> he probably was he an pro- alcoholic. Well, he was, yeah. Actually, a sad a sad end to the to the Bowery Boys came a few years later when Leo Gorsi's dad died in a car accident and so he started showing up to the set drunk of the Bowery Boys movies and not being able to perform so the last I think 10 of the series don't have Leo Gorsi in them which is unimaginable it's just <laughs> Hunts Hall and a bunch of these like who are the other Bowery Boys <laughs> they're not even children either they look like... <laughs> older than Leo Gorsi <laughs> And they have nothing to do. Like, could you imagine being a Bowery boy who's not Hans Hall or Leo Gorsi? I, I I can't even imagine. They're just there to fill out space. Yeah. It, it's bad. I would not okay, recommend it. Okay, but let's it. say what it's about. <laughs> we have to talk more about it. Yeah, yeah. So Ghost Chasers, the, the boys are, they come into contact with a uh, phony spiritualist. And then when they expose her, they find out she's part of a ring of con man swamis. So they go to try to expose the scandal. And then meanwhile, there's a ghost who only Hans Hall can see. A guy named Edgar who speaks in kind of Eliz- Elizabethan English. You and know, also... Um, he, he talks to the audience like Alvy Singer, yes. <laughs> That's right. Which is a stylistic technique that made me sit up in my chair a little bit. I think one of the reasons why I didn't like this movie, too, was the fact that only Hans Hall can see this ghost. It was never adequately explained why that was necessary. <laughs> That's your stumbling block. Well, because like, he's drunk. I, like I don't know. Like the ghost didn't at one point say, you know, like 
Well, maybe he did, and I just didn't hear it. But it's like, oh, oh, uh, sorry. The way the afterlife works, I can only be seen by one person. It's just, it just seems so arbitrary. <laughs> it seems like such a, and a it just weird added, logical. Block. And then it just added, wait, wait, wait. The three stooges didn't die when he got <laughs> hit by a wrench. And then you know, it just added you know endless like repetitive scenes of Hansal going, oh, Edgar told us we need to go into this room, and then Gorsi saying, ah, let me tell you one more time, Dash, no Edgar. You know, slapping him in the face. <laughs> Moment of silence as he looks at his red handprint and goes, why do you hit me? So yeah, this is considered one of the best Bowery Boys movies. This is one of the, I think the only Bowery Boys movie that was nominated for the American Film Institute's <laughs> top 100 comedies list. You feel like someone like Leonard Maltin is like pushing this in, right? Being like, this has historical importance, so it should be in the collection. I think, you know, perhaps they felt they needed to nominate a Bowery Boys movie. And I respect... The res- fact that they existed for so long. Yeah. I There's think- something about that tenacity that is impressive. Yeah. But, uh, you know, I know what to get Will for his birthday now, the Bowery Boys collection, if you volume do- five. If you do, I'll watch all of it. No, you won't. I'm exactly the kind of guy who would just like spend a day watching a bunch of Bowery Boys movies. Do you think you'll get like Stockholm Syndrome at some point? I might. (laughs) I might. Because like I didn't grow up with the Bowery Boys. Mm -hmm. So, you know, I grew up with the Three Stooges. So, of course, I like them. And if you want to do more research into Poverty Row, this is one of those subjects that is everywhere. There's literally like... 25 books written on Poverty Row. We didn't even get into Harry Cohn, whose autobiography was called The Merchant Prince of Poverty Row. Well, he elevated Columbia Pictures from Poverty Row to the majors. And he he was also an evil producer who did terrible things. Yeah. Okay, so it's time to go to letters, Will. Okay. (laughs) Sorry, I'm still coming down from that Bowery Boys discussion. (laughs) So our first letter is from William Pond, and he goes, Hey guys, I emailed your podcast a few months ago. Please don't think I am that weird guy who will start emailing every week. I just wanted to pick up on a small point and fight in the corner of a particular hero of mine. In your excellent episode on cinematographers, you paid particular attention to the 1957 film Sweet Smell of Success, shot by James Wong Howe. You credited the majority of the picture's success and excellence to both his cinematography and Clifford Odette's super sharp script, quickly passing over director Alexander McKendrick, stating he is not remembered for much else. While McKendrick's career in America never reached the great heights his debut U.S. picture, Sweet Smell Success had, in England, he is praised as one of the most important directors of Ealing comedies, hmm. alongside Charles Crichton, who you covered on your British comedies episode. His films Whiskey Galore, The Man in the White Suit, and The Lady Killers are classics of British cinema and are regularly re-shown on television here. After his directing career in the States fizzled out, McKendrick became dean of the film school at the California Institute of Arts, serving in that role for 25 years. His book on filmmaking, the a lot of his teachings and is a book I highly recommend to anyone seeking to learn the craft of making films. Uh, I'm sorry that we missed that. I didn't realize he directed The Lady Killers. I did know that he directed The Lady Killers and when Will said it didn't matter, we were on another topic so fast that I forgot. I was actually editing the episode and I went, shit. I forgot to mention he directed The Lady Killers. All right. Well, apologies. Um, and I didn't bring it up but because I know Will would make fun of it. But I remember that reading an interview with James Mangold, who did The Wolverine and Logan, saying that his hero was Alexander McKendrick. And it makes sense that he was a teacher at a university, which is where James Mangold would have met him. Well, I'm glad you brought him up. And he goes, have you ever considered doing an episode on Ealing comedies? Really enjoy listening to your podcast. Thanks, Will. I would do an episode on Ealing. I, it's something that I'm actually, is a bit of a blind spot for me, frankly. Me too. Yeah. Like, I haven't seen Whiskey Galore. I've seen The Lady Killers. Mm-hmm. And let's put it on the list. If you want to send us letters, you can do so at Podcast at gmail.com. And this week for our Patreon, we did an episode on the story of Ricky, the classic 
classic splatter Hong Kong kung fu picture. And we talked a lot about the director and the genre of Category 3 films that used to exist in Hong Kong around the 90s. That's $5 a month. You can check us out on Patreon, Important Cinema Club Podcast. And next week, we're going to be doing Johnny Toe, a Hong Kong director that is currently having a uh, retrospective at the Toronto Lightbox. Best known for his stylish, minimalist uh, crime films. Uh, but also a man who's directed comedies, musicals, uh, kung fu films. He's one of, of those rare directors that on the surface would look like pure journeyman, but his style is evident in every picture that he makes, whether it be Andy Lau in a fat suit in Love on a Diet, <laughs> or one of those like noir-inspired comedy films that takes place in a hospital called Help. <laughs> and also somebody who I feel like has been like struggling with himself trying to adapt to, you know, the more rigorous censorship of the mainland. If you want to do a little bit more reading about him, I would recommend picking up the last month's issue of Cineast, mm. which you could find if you're in Canada in places like Indigo, because there is an amazing article with a bunch of Hong Kong directors and the struggle that they have now dealing with Chinese censors and the Chinese film market trying to make the movies that they already made. And in that interview, I feel like Johnny Toe is the most vocal and honest out of all of them. Yeah, it's great. So until then, my name is Justin McClue. I'm Will Sloan. Thanks for listening. So I was shocked today when Will said, hey, Justin, let's talk about the Justice League. Well, so I saw Justice League this week and I thought it was not very good, but I really liked your take on it when you wrote your Letterboxd review because you kind of liked Justice League. I did like Justice League. And I thought you had a rather, I think, moving take on the film. (laughs) So if you're listening to this 40 years in the future, it's apocalyptic and you have no idea what happened to the Justice League. Basically, Zack Snyder started shooting this film while the uh, previous film was coming on theaters everybody hated it but he was already stuck directing it and he made a film he showed the rough cut to studios and he stepped back because his daughter had unfortunately committed suicide and Joss Whedon, the guy who made The Avengers and who made Buffy the Vampire Slayer, stepped in to do reshoots just to complete the picture. And to kind of Whedonize it, I think it's fair to say. He, according to some people, reshot like 50 to 70% of the movie. The film actually starts with a Zack Snyder film over footage that Joss Whedon shot. It's almost like laughably obvious Mm -hmm. what is Joss... Like, yeah, any scene that is like you know, super, super dark and very somber with, you know, and heavily stylized is obviously Snyder. And then any scene that's, you know, looks like a TV show, looks like a TV show. And like the dialogue is very jokey. And in fact, like, like in the middle of scenes, like Ben Affleck will gain 20 pounds and start joking like I in the middle of a serious scene. I actually found a list on a forum that a visual effects artist put out of every scene that Joss Whedon shot. And it basically breaks down that all the action is Zack Snyder's with particular beats that if you think about it, you're like, oh yeah, Joss Whedon would have brought that. Like Superman using his freeze breast at one point, that was a Joss Whedon thing. Like I thought the movie was terrible, but um, you know, at, at two hours, it was mercifully briefer than all the other DC films. And, and also like so much happens in this movie and so much is rushed through. Like Marvel with their movies was smart to give each of their characters an introductory movie. So like they could establish the arc because all the arcs of these characters are so like 
ludicrously rushed through. Um, and you don't know any of these people. Yeah. I compared the film to when I was a kid and I got into comic books. They're actually banned in my household for a long time. And when I would go to a friend's house and pick up a superhero uh, book and it would be like issue five and some weird like mm-hmm. the Metal Beast Chronicles or something like that. So you'd have Superman and Batman fighting these villains that I go, I have no investment in them. I don't know what is going on. But, you know, it's just kind of fun to still see them up on screen. Th- that's what I like about your defense of the movie, because like I think that is that is if there can be a defense of this movie it's the fact that it's like pure superhero goofiness and like there's no and and it's like it's almost as if it were a bunch of panels pasted from different comic books into one like there's that scene in wonder woman's home island which i'm guessing was probably a whedon scene it was actually a Zack snyder scene it looks like it looks like such shit like it looks like the special effects were done in two months like it's a movie that keeps alternating between tones and styles where yeah it feels like two directors were we're struggling yeah, to tell a story. Yeah. And let's be honest, uh, Zack Snyder, uh, he hates superheroes. Like, he fucking hates yeah. them. I think every Superman scene, almost every Superman was scene... Was all reshot by Joss Whedon. Anytime Superman opens his mouth, that's Joss Whedon dialogue coming out and of his mouth. And in fact, I think most of the scenes where it's Superman and Amy Adams, they're not even there on the same day. Every scene where the Justice League is together as a group was reshot by Joss Whedon. Oh, shit. <laughs> yeah, so there's a lot of tinkering that went on and with this. And Superman's face is a nightmare. They didn't have enough time. I spoke to a guy who works with visual effects, and he said that the people that worked on the show, two extra months, it would have looked seamless. But we didn't. So it looks like that Superman was born with a weird deformity on his top lip. Well, I mean, this is like what's sad about the movie. I mean, mm-hmm. I think this is a movie that I probably would have enjoyed if I were six years old. What's sad about it is the fact that it is just, you know, they had a release date yeah. and they were going to put something in it and like it didn't matter what it was. On one hand, uh, I love all the Superman stuff in this movie because Superman is so joyful and just doesn't care about the villain when he shows up. The film treats the villain as a joke by the time Superman shows up <laughs> to the point that he stops in the middle of the fight to go fly off to save some civilians. And when he comes back, he's like, this guy's still bothering you. And he's just basically oh, like painful. No, that's great. That is Superman. That's the best. <laughs> okay. Like the question is what, uh, I mean, I don't want to defend justice league. Like that's not the, the, the hill I'm going to die on, but there's this idea that like, this is fun disposable entertainment, right? Yeah. And that's what it L- is. Like a shitty comic book that you find on a yeah. street somewhere. Like, as long as it's in some ways fun and, like, it... I don't want to say it does justice to these characters, but uh, I don't want to jump into a whole defense of superheroes, but, like, what are superheroes supposed to represent? It, at, at their base, they're supposed to be, like, people that do stuff that is good because they feel they need to do this good stuff. Sure. And I think that, like, when you're a kid and you see that kind of stuff, like, that's important okay. as a kid. And that's what sucks about Batman vs. Superman, which is a movie about superheroes who don't want to be superheroes and hate what they're doing. Anyway. I think the Justice League should replace Jesus. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Can we laugh at Ben Affleck just briefly? Oh, like, he does not want to be in this movie. He's, uh, the scene early on when he shaves, and then you, yeah. get, you get a look at his, like, rum-soaked face. <laughs> Like his puffy, you know, I mean, red face. I loved Ben Affleck's delivery of half-hearted Joss Whedon lines. Oh yeah. Well, I I thought he was pretty good in Batman versus Superman. But He's fine. His performance, I don't think, emerges unscathed from this one because it's pieced together yeah. from like three different shooting. There's schedules. a shot of Batman reacting to Superman's return. That will be a gif you will see thousands of times where he opens his mouth and goes, <gasps> "That made me laugh so hard." And that's all I talked about when I left the theater. I mean, if you're going to make a movie like this, I'll enjoy it 
it, if you just continually make fun of the films that came before it, like yeah. it's constantly saying like jokes about how lame the previous film was. Mm-hmm. And it's a film for no one yeah. because like people like Batman versus Superman want that movie again. And that's terrible. Why would we want that movie? And, and people that want a real superhero movie that makes sense are not going to get that in this either. It's for six-year-olds. Yeah, that's they'll, who it's they'll, for. They'll enjoy it. Speaking of movies, I also saw The Disaster Artist this week. I liked it with reservations. Yeah. I, it's got a it's got a really good James Franco performance. I think the script is good. I think it really captures what's good and what's bad about Tommy Wiseau. And it's directed with the flair of someone that showed up on set and just set the camera, whatever was happening. It really looks bad. I think. I actually think as a, like as as a piece of visual storytelling, it's not even as good as The Room. <laughs> well, uh, James Franco is not a very good director. Well, it just seems like visually, it's kind of a missed opportunity because there's a lot you can do with. LA and with mm-hmm. Hollywood to convey like these Hollywood dreamers in this glamorous city but nothing the city doesn't have any glamour to it it's like a handheld eyesore yeah it, but, but I enjoyed the movie overall because James Franco's performance is so strong oh yeah and so sympathetic while still being crazy enough like people when he was cast were going what James Franco as Tommy Wiseau like wouldn't you get this person or that person and he is like the perfect Tommy well, Wiseau well frankly I didn't think he would take it as seriously as he did mm-hmm. I mean he he captures Tommy Wiseau's almost uncapturable voice and mm-hmm. his speech patterns and stuff he looks like Tommy Wiseau he's sculpted his body to look like Tommy Wiseau the Wiseau's only thing that's body. missing is the wrinkles in his face yeah and that's it but but like he cap he captures like Tommy Wiseau's peculiar charm and also his like monstrousness um, so yeah, you know, with reservations, a uh, good movie. Yeah, it, it's a film that is also you can feel the people struggling making it, putting all these celebrity cameos because <laughs> they don't think the narrative will be strong enough to shoulder hmm. or, like the story as it goes along, and so it's in a weird fight with it, itself. I mean, if someone like I don't know a good director had made it, yeah, all I could think of was like Tim Burton. No, he's bad. Milos Forman. No, 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 we don't want him. Yeah, all the biopic directors. I, I, yeah, I don't know who would make uh, the the disaster artist. Um, isn't it sad, though, that Greg Sestero didn't get that Malcolm in the Middle guest spot that would have rocketed him to stardom? Well, I think what the saddest part about The Disaster Artist, the movie, is the fact that on IMDb, it states that David Dakota plays David Dakota because Greg Sestero did star in a film directed by Dakota, and none of that is referenced in the final oh, motion picture. David Dakota hit the cutting room floor. <laughs> That's right. Oh. <laughs> I am sad about that, actually. Me too.